Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast. I'm your host, Frank Giles, and as always, I'm joined by the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford, Michael Rogers. Michael, welcome. Thanks, Frank. Good to be with you. Great. Well, we're in the throes of the holiday end of the year season, so a lot's going on, and we we uh, did recently have a celebration of sorts, and I, I think you want to talk a little bit about that and uh, do some recognitions of a job well done. Yeah, celebration, a little bittersweet, um, and for, there's many of you in the industry who would, at least if you don't know, you recognize the name Ruth Borger. And Dr. Borger just recently retired uh, the end of October uh, from the CREC. Um, and she was our citrus communication specialist. Uh, before uh, taking on that role of, of citrus communication specialist, she was actually the associate vice president uh, for IFAS communications in Gainesville, serving all of IFAS in communication efforts. And, you know, it we've worked with with Ruth for quite a while on a lot of the the challenges communicating the science of citrus what we're learning as researchers and you know our our relationship with Ruth began on citrus communications you know back when she was still in Gainesville um i think probably our our first big effort began probably in 2018 and you know in IFAS, we were um, rightfully so, getting a lot of, of criticism about how we're communicating. Can we do a better job of communicating information? Because with HLB, you know, growths continue, and, and they still to this day are, are challenged by HLB, and really needed to get the right information in, in the manner they, you know, in a timely manner to be able to make informed decisions. And so uh, that's when I first approached Ruth, and we got together and started talking about ways that we could, you know, improve how we communicate what's happening research-wise and, and tools that growers can use um, so, they're, so growers are informed and they have that information to make, make informed decisions. And so, you know, Ruth was really instrumental in, in helping us rethink what we need to do, how we can do things better. And I think she really drilled into my head, you know, how we need to broaden how we communicate. Um, as a researcher, uh, historically, you know, we all tend to think, okay, well, I, I presented this research at Citrus Expo. Everybody heard it. They, they know what we've talked about. That's not always the case. Uh, oftentimes, you know, people aren't present in our presentations. Um, not everyone can get out. Sometimes er, people probably laugh a little bit about this, but we recognize sometimes those presentations by researchers aren't always that clear and people don't understand what's being talked about. Um, sometimes we tend to flood people with too much data, and so the message gets lost. And so Ruth was really key in helping us, you know, go back and reevaluate how we need to get information to growers, you know, and, and the methods that they want to receive. And so this podcast that we're on right now, this is one of the first, I would say, the early pilot projects working with Ruth back in 2018 uh, to test the waters on this new method of communication. And um and I have to admit, I was pretty skeptical about the podcast at first. Um, you know, I called it a pilot project. I had never listened to a podcast before, really wasn't sure what a podcast was and would anybody really tune into a podcast. And and here we are five years later. Uh, this is I think this is episode 64. So we started in September. Our first episode was September of 2018. And 
uh, I think we don't we have we don't have any plans to quit doing the podcast. It is it is you know gotten a lot of positive feedback from growers uh, who like to download it, listen to it in the truck while they're in the grove. Um, and I think we're averaging probably at least 300 downloads a month. Sometimes it may be as 100 plus, just depending on the topic. But it's um, far exceeded what I thought would happen in terms of of people listening to and using uh, the podcast as just one way of communicating. And so um, that's just the you know probably one of the first examples we worked with Ruth and 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 she obviously was a key in in setting up and establishing that that relationship with Agnet Media. Uh, y'all have been very good in helping us get this podcast produced every month. And and again, you know, Ruth played a real key role in, in helping organize, plan, and and make sure the podcast goes on as scheduled. Um, another thing that, that Ruth was key in early on, um, this is before she moved down to Lake Alfred, was the uh, Citrus Nutrition Box program that some people remember. And um, <clears throat> I think as, as researchers, we recognized, you know, even back in 2018 and before, uh, the importance of of having a good nutrition program and mitigating the effects of HLB. Um, it, you know, it just doesn't mean you you increase NP and K. You've got to really think about those micronutrients and and how you put those out to optimize plant nutrition, take the stress off the plants. Um, we had a lot of presentations, you know, that were given by researchers, uh, but we just had not seen wide scale adoption of 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 you know optimizing those nutrition programs. I mean, some people were doing it, but probably most growers hadn't really understood what we were really getting at. And um, so that was part of the, the the reason behind the nutrition box program. And, uh, you know, the face of the program, I think most people would recognize Dr. Tripti Vashisht as being the person who really led the program. But behind the scenes, Ruth was key in doing all the all the logistics and getting the boxes assembled, working with the, the analytical labs who would process samples for us that growers sent in and getting results back out to growers. And, um, you know, it was more than just putting together a box and saying, hey, go use this. And we had good participation in the program. And, and regardless of whether a grower participated in that program or not, one of the key things I think for me was that it really sh uh, shone a light on the importance of nutrition, having a good optimized nutrition program. And, you know, today I think we're seeing a lot more people uh, working uh, to improve their nutrition program as that is the key, uh, the foundation or the starting point for any HLB management, you know, plan that growers are going to put in place. Um, there's other things that, you know, Ruth has been involved in as well. Um, and, and, you know, later on she, uh, after probably, finishing about a decade as working as associate vice president of IFAS communications. Um, we, we really, she was contemplating retiring. We didn't want her to retire. We saw lots of opportunity. She saw lots of opportunity to work with us here in Lake Alfred. So um, uh, then vice president of IFAS, Jack Payne, um, let Ruth uh, moved to a position down here in Lake Alfred with us at the CREC uh, to work as the citrus communication specialist. And we got to enjoy her being here working with us for three years until just recently. So a little bittersweet that we're losing her, but she has done so much for us, helping us further expand our communications effort. Um, things that she was really key in getting set up for us included, we have the, many people are subscribed to our UFIFA statewide citrus newsletter that goes out monthly. Um, she's worked with Agnet Media and, and uh, Tacey Callies on the tip of the week that goes out. Um, Ruth really works to make sure that we have researchers lined up to feed Agnet Media that information to get those tips of the week out every week. Um, she was key in getting our citrus research website set up. 
Um, that's citrusresearch.ifis.ufl.edu. And that's really kind of the clearinghouse or where we're archiving all of our information that we have, uh, presentations from Expo, things like that, uh, podcast uh, archives, a number of things are housed there. So people kind of be a one-stop shop to go find some of the stuff that we've been putting out if people need to review or find something. Um, uh, she's also worked with our extension uh, staff, um, Jamie Burrow, especially who uh, everybody knows from Expo and a lot of meetings around the state. Jamie's always there with her team, uh, setting up our educational booths, and 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 Ruth has really helped Jamie and that group and our researchers to refine and um, develop new materials, uh, more hands-on interactive displays, things like that 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 growers can um, get more interactive or involved with and learn about some of the latest research. Um, also, one of the things we've started doing at, at Expo every year is coming out with a, a citrus research summary book that you know has uh, summaries from all of our researchers in IFAS working on citrus, uh, just kind of the latest executive summaries and where they are on the research projects. And, and Ruth was really key in making sure that got assembled and printed and distributed every year at Expo. Um, and, and speaking of Expo, uh, she's actually spent time one-on-one -on -one with our researchers talking about how to give a better presentation. You know, sometimes uh, less is more on that slide. I, I know people can think about sitting in some of our presentation rooms and seeing a slide with so much, well, I won't say junk, but information <laughs> on the screen. You can't make heads or tails of it. It's too small to read. Um, you know, just how we present, uh, because that's something that in grad school, most of our researchers were taught how to do research, but oftentimes we don't learn, well, how do you give a good presentation? Something that people will actually can digest and remember. And so we've seen a lot of improvement with a number of our researchers who've worked one-on-one -on -one with Ruth, and she's really been training folks, trying to help them uh, improve on, on their communication, verbal communication, and through those PowerPoint presentations. And of course, lastly, I mean, she's also been really key Working with media, um, we get bombarded with requests, you know, newspapers, things like that, wanting to talk about different stories or things they've heard about. And um, if you're like me, a lot of times you open the paper and you kind of scratch your head when you read the article or the headline, and it's like, well, that's a little off. And um, she's really worked trying to to work with the the reporters to make sure they they get the gist of what the importance or the real news story is to try to cut down on some of the, maybe the headlines that are a little too out there or too flamboyant. We can't control everything, but she's really, she's really uh, worked hard to liaison with media outlets and try to get the right story out there. So um, there's been so much that Ruth has been involved in uh, that's helped us tremendously. And um, so we're, we're going to miss her um, as, as she, as she's transitioning into retirement, but she is definitely in, in just the short, time that we've worked with her both in Gainesville in the past three years here at Lake Alfred. Uh, she's done a tremendous amount of work for us. She's really laid a platform for us to continue to communicate through these, these methods. And we'll, we'll continue to look for new ways to communicate to growers. We're always open to suggestions. People can reach out and let us know ideas or, or ways you'd like to see us communicate. But but I think in the, in the past five years, we've come a long way in, in how we communicate our information out to growers in a way that they can use and we'll continue to do so. But we really wanted to just shout out to Ruth Borger, uh, thank her for all of her research or time working with our researchers and dedication to IFAS and the citrus programs. And she will definitely miss 
but we do wish her a, a very happy retirement. Yeah, speaking from the media side of things, uh, I, I'm speaking on behalf of all Agnet Media. She was a great asset and great help to us uh, to kind of, as you say, bridge that gap between research and and the media and the public, and 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 sometimes helping to translate the academia into into words and terms uh, everyone else can absorb. So. We'll miss working with her as well, but certainly wish her a happy retirement. It's well-deserved, and uh, so we just wish her well. So if anything else, Michael? I'd just like to end by uh, wishing everybody on the podcast a, a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We look forward to being back in touch with you at the beginning of the year uh, with continuing to folks on the research progress being made and, and things that will be happening across the industry. Great. With that, we'll wrap it up and I uh, look forward to catching up with you again next month. All right. Thank you. I'm now joined by John Chater. Um, he's based there at the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. John, welcome. Thank you very much, Frank. Good deal. Well, we're in the holiday season and the citrus season is well underway. So we thought we'd have you come joining us and talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing in citrus breeding and working with growers. I understand that you have a few new projects that have been recently funded, and you'd like to tell us a little bit about those. So if you if you want to jump jump right in and let's just talk about some of those new projects that are coming up. Okay, so uh, one one project that was recently funded uh, was an ECDREP uh, uh project. It's an emergency citrus uh, funding project from the federal government from NEFA. And in this project, we're going to be looking at some um, orange scions and some other cultivars that appear to have HLB tolerance. And we're going to compare um, these different cultivars um, in the field or out, out in the grove versus how they perform in a cup system. And so Obviously, in a, in a well-designed cup system, you won't have psyllids in there, so you won't have the vector for CLAS or HLB. And so I, I will, our group, um, I have a nice uh, multi-state group that is going to be studying the biologies of these um, different cultivars within cups and outside of cups in the grove. So we're, we're interested in looking for different genes or metabolites or the, the expression of genes, what they like to call transcripts, that might be associated with tolerance in um, this HLB system that is devastating citrus. So the idea is to look at clean um, uh, cultivars that are industry standards, like Valencia or Hamlin 141, which we have growing in cups right now, um, and compare those same industry standards out in the grove and to see how their biologies are different. And then at the same time, have some of these varieties or, or cultivars such as N1332 uh, Hamlin and some of the Valencia Soma clones or, or other selections from the breeding program that appear to have a higher level of tolerance and to have them in cups and outside in the grove and do a kind of a comparative study where we're looking at conventional standards that are clean, uh, tolerant, um, newer tolerant accessions that are clean, and then having the conventions that are um, dirty or, or infected, 
and these new selections that are infected and try to look for trends and try to look for uh, mechanisms or strategies that we might be able to pull out to discover why something like N1332, when it's in the right environment, looks very healthy compared to its um, clone, which is um, Hamlin 141 in many cases. Um, so we're going to be testing the gene transcription or the gene expression. And we're also going to be testing the uh, met uh, metabolomic profile to see if we can find any sort of um, uh, reason or, or biological mechanism that for why these particular accessions are healthier when challenged by CLAS. Um, it's, it's quite interesting that some of these industry standards are already in cups. And why would why why are they growing juice oranges in cups? Well, one reason is is for seed source for transplant transformation. There's been a lot of talk in the industry and at IFIS and at the state level about funding a plant transformation facility at the University of Florida. And um, one of, one of the things that you need in order to transform plants is some clean seedlings from from uh, a clean source. And so if from talking to some of the folks who work at the plant transformation facilities, if they're able to get some of this, uh, the seed from Hamlin or uh, some of these other varieties that are more easily transformed, they grow off much well, much better than if they're taken from a, a Hamlin or a, or a different type of, of cultivar out there in the field where they've been infected. So the trees are already in cups for that reason. And so I figured you know, this this juice orange problem is is uh, perhaps one of the most significant problems in agriculture. Um, this really hasn't been done before, as far as I'm aware. And so th it's kind of using the cup system as a living laboratory to compare with what's going outside in the grove. I got this idea from working at UC Riverside, where they have a biosafety laboratory three, they call it a BSL three facility where they have very small bench space in the greenhouse to work on HLB infected or CLAS infected trees. And coming here, seeing a cup structure where you have a full-size tree to compare outside, that's where I, I, I had developed this idea to look at clean versus dirty conventions, conventional standards, and clean versus dirty tolerant standards to try to find which genes may be implicated so that the folks who are working at this plant transformation facility might be able to tweak the genome or make genomic edits or gene edits on the conventional standards that growers know and have been the bread and butter of the industry so we can hopefully transform citrus into something that makes HLB functionally irrelevant. That's very interesting because it really is two different worlds on the outside versus the inside of those cups, right? Certainly is it. It's amazing. Um, it, it it's and it, it. I'm really thankful for those who uh, before me have uh, uh, paved the way. Like uh, Dr. Arnold Schumann, a pioneer in cups, has really. Uh, he he he's the one that has the plants that that we're going to be utilizing in this in this federal uh, federally supported or sponsored uh, project. So I'm very thankful for his support. And um, and for the folks in the plant transformation facility who planted those Hamlins and those Valencias out there are in there um, and, and they're letting me use those those trees um, to find out what the juice quality is inside the cups versus outside the cups for the economics of it all. 
And something interesting this year, I've been pulling um, conventional Hamlin 141, Hamlin 1332 from different groves um, uh, outside of cups and comparing them to those inside of cups. And I, I expected there to be much higher bricks in these um, in these cups uh, uh, grown fruit. But it turns out that at least at this point in time in the season, those those Hamlin oranges are quite large right now. And so um, the, the, the bricks is is comparable to what we're seeing out in the grove. Um, it might be because of the heat in the in the in the cups uh, system that maybe increases the amount of photorespiration in that in that plant. And so they're not able to build as much carbon or sugars in that case. And 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 or we have the fruit size, so there might be some some level of bricks um, uh, kind of um, uh, dilution going on when you have a, a a fruit the size of a softball versus a fruit the size of a baseball. Um, but I, I thought that that was very interesting. I, I expected those bricks in in the uh, cups grown Hamlins to be much much higher at this point in time. But one thing I am seeing in the cups is nothing is dropping. The only fruit that are dropping in cups off Hamlin are ones that have been hedged when they're, when they're trying to clean up the rows. So um, we, we were testing these trees, making sure they don't have HLB. Um, but this is, this is the idea, looking at the quality differences between inside and outside, and then looking at the differences in um, the environment. They call it a G by E, a genetics by environment interaction. How, how are these plants acting differently? How is their biology different um, when you're looking at a conventional versus a tolerant plant that isn't infected, full-grown tree, versus one that's outside? And hopefully we'll get some, we'll, we'll be able to find some clues that we can move forward um, and, and help this plant transformation facility find targets for um, editing citrus um, into a more healthy state in this HLB environment. That's very interesting. The uh, the quality thing, uh, like I would have thought, just like you, that the the uh, bricks would have been better. Is there uh, anything else you're working on that you want to share? Yeah, I'm really excited about this uh, newly funded project. I'm I'm uh, very fortunate um, to be working in this breeding program that has been, um, uh, in I would say, increasing the diversity of citrus of 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 the citrus germplasm that we have not only in the state of Florida or in the United States, but basically in the in the world. Um, uh, Fred and Jude have been breeding citrus uh, for decades now, collecting accessions from all over the world. Even Bill Castle had a hand in moving some of these accessions from some of these uh, other citrus growing regions and into the state of Florida. And with this germplasm, they've used um, conventional breeding techniques and techniques in biotechnology uh, uh, like somatic hybridization to create to create some very interesting, unique um, uh, accessions, and in some cases they are tolerant to HLB, um, and we have some accessions that that appear to be uh, resistant a, a, on some level in which they're out in the field for several years and we can't and they're not testing positive for Liberobacter. This is this is to me this is a very important um, these this is very important biodiversity we're working with here, and so um, CRDF has sponsored a a project to consolidate all of the tolerant and and resistant material into a centralized block at the CREC so that we have perhaps in the in a good case scenario um, hundreds of HLB tolerant and perhaps possibly 
resistant material in one centralized location so that we can run different types of genomic studies on them to, to again, look for mechanisms for HLB tolerance and mechanisms for HLB resistance. And this is also the, uh, the plan for this is not only for conventional breeding, if we have all the tolerant resistant material in one space, it'll make making those crosses that much more easier because we won't have to be carrying pollen across the state to make a cross at some trial somewhere or, or at, a, at, a, at a place two and a half hours away. We have it all behind a safe uh, fence, um, protected, um, all this material. Uh, hope to one day uh, it, to acquire funding to duplicate the material in a separate location in the state of Florida in case a major hurricane or other type of natural or, or human-made disaster were to happen. Um, getting that material in one space is also important for this idea for the plant transformation facility using CRISPR or um, also known as gene editing or using transgenic. Some of you folks might have heard of, of GMOs using these types of biotechnology um, to, uh, again, make HLB uh, functionally irrelevant to the citrus industry. And so the idea is to have all of these different biologies from this um, biodiverse um, uh, block so that we have several different strategies for HLB tolerance in there from a diverse background. And hopefully we'll be able to find uh, multiple strategies for HLB tolerance, which can be stacked so that we can design a, a juice orange for the juice stream for the, for the processors and the growers. And we can design fresh market fruit for the growers and the packers and the public so that, so that Florida is um, uh, back, back uh, um, full steam ahead, uh, growing the citrus industry, um, hope, hopefully to, to back to when, when we were uh, you know, producing enough orange juice to, to meet demand, right? Um, so so I'm really excited about those projects and I'm hoping that I can collaborate with these folks who are working in plant transformation to discover strategies to improve citrus um, in a collaborative effort in order to uh, design citrus trees or perhaps conventionally breed citrus trees into, into a more tolerant state. Great. And, and speaking of co collaboration, I know you've been working closely with growers um, and working on trials and just observations in general. Uh, what are you seeing out there? We're like mid-December right now when we're recording this and uh, had a little cool weather. And but, uh, you know, you've been looking at some varieties and, and rootstocks over the over the tenure that you've been here. And now we're going on what, uh, two years, three years? I'm starting to be in two years next month. I'll be in, in, in the saddle for two years now. That's right. right. So just, you know, what are you seeing out there? Any varieties that are, you know, more established uh, that, that are catching your eye that, uh, that look good out there despite the uh, conditions? Well, uh, you know, I have been talking about this N1332. Um, it's, as as some growers would would note that in some groves it's doing very well for them, in other groves it's not doing so well for them. Uh, we have a seventy five acre trial with this particular accession on two or more root stocks, um, and those trees look better than most of the other early uh, 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 combinations in that particular grove. But there are blocks that didn't have pr good production. Um, I've been uh, running things through state testing through the our, our packing house and 
and through our pilot plant to, to get state certified tests. I've been testing N1332 that has been injected, that has not been injected. Same with the OLLs. Uh, I'm uh, uh, collaborating with a grower who has a nice, uh, a mature OLL block. Uh, we've uh, injected some of those combinations. So he has many different combinations of OLL on several different rootstocks, and there's good replication there. Um, and and in, in some of the some of those uh, combinations that looked good, we injected um, some of those, maybe four of those trees, and then maybe six of those trees we didn't inject, or vice versa, where we have. We have um, those blocks in which half of the or about half of the trees are injected and half of the trees aren't. And I had my graduate student Emily Warbington go and um, uh, basically do fruit drop counts. So she was going, going under the tree, counting the tree. You know these trees are rather close together; they're kind of in a staggered planting. So I said, under the drip line, count how many fruit have dropped. And it's very interesting uh, what she what she did the analysis and she found that there seems to be a rootstock effect on drop with OTC. So for some of these rootstocks, they seem to be at least it, 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 the only, the only factor that we're looking at here is OLL on these different rootstocks. There could be other variables at play here, but based on what we gathered at this point in time, there seems to be some sort of rootstock um, uh, interaction going on there where one rootstock when you inject one OLL, one particular OLL8 on one particular rootstock, you might experience typical drop, but you go to a different rootstock and there's evidence that there's less drop for that particular rootstock. She just collected this data a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're going to continue to collect this fruit drop data because to me, it's one of the most important problems in, in juice orange uh, production here where it's it's just terrible putting all these inputs into the grove over the season and just to watch them hit the, watch these fruit hit the ground and so i'm i'm very keen on um, discovering these otc effects because one of one of the things that a lot of these growers are really hoping for is that with with injection whether it's, it takes one year or two years or more that will reduce that will reduce that fruit drop and will increase those bricks in those in those trees so that was something quite interesting. I'm, uh, we have a trial. We have a trial called Eagle Lake, and and um, at Eagle Lake, it it looks very good out there. And and for being in December, it looks especially good out there right now. And I'd welcome folks to contact me if they if they want to take a look at these um at these trees. We have uh, we have we have historical standards in there. We have uh, material from the breeding program. Uh, uh, that uh, even we we have uh, uh, OLLs, um, we have orange-like hybrids, we have fresh fresh market varieties uh, with tolerance, without tolerance, and there's something about that particular site, whether it's the um, uh, cultural care uh, and the genetics interacting, where we have a very nice trial of many many um, promising um, accessions. And we hope to have a, um, some field days out there so that we can invite large groups of growers. And we, we've been hosting dozens of growers out there over this past over these past several months to, to demonstrate that there seems to be material that is growing off well. The trials may be uh, uh, three or four years old, so it's still it's still a young trial, but uh, it, it's it's pretty amazing what you can find out there. 
Um, and we have some other some other locations where um, trees are growing off well and, and it's looking pretty good out there. Um, I, I can't say right now that we've we found the answer in any of these. This is something that I'm I'm dedicating my uh, my research program to as soon as as soon as something pops up that seems to be an answer for whether it's for juice for the juice stream or for for fresh market. Um, I'll, I'll be the first to to tell the IFAS administration that we have to have a, um, a, a major press release about that. But right now I'm uh, gathering as much data as I can. I've uh, almost filled up the um, um, we're filling up the cold room storage. We're, we're backed up in terms of state testing. So I'm I'm almost at capacity in what I can test right now with our with our um, pilot plant. So I'm I'm gathering as much data as I possibly can for the industry so that they get the answers they they require um, in order for them to make cultivar decisions or production decisions. Um, but uh, I, I am seeing some promising fresh market varieties out there and juice, juice uh, oranges out there. Um, and it's pretty amazing when you go from grove to grove, whether it's a commercial grove or a, 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 a cultivar trial, that there's such variability out there in terms of the performance. You go out to, I, you know, I know a grower up in Lake County. I go to his Hamlins, very few fruit on the ground. I go out uh, perhaps close here um, to some of these trials at Polk County and it's it's raining fruit. And so finding out why that's occurring, is it nutritional, is it climatic? Of course, HLB is, is the number one culprit there. Um, but what what is keeping these fruit hanging on the tree? What it what is causing them to drop is 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 something that is quite confusing when you go from from trial to trial. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that, and I think a lot a lot of folks are too. Um, you know, with the N1332s, there are some blocks in that 75 acre um, uh, trial right up the road from me where they're um, over 10 10 bricks right now. Um, you know, 10.4, 10.5. And then there are other blocks that are in the eights or nines. What, and when we're talking about 50 tree plantings, you know, these blocks or these replications are in 50 tree plantings. Why is it that I'm on the same piece of land? It's a 75 acre piece of land. So it's a large piece of land, but going from a 50 tree planting on one end of that 70 acre, 75 acres, and then going half into the heart of that, of that block and seeing such a, a, a huge difference really, really leads me to want to take a, a closer look at, at things like nutrition or or uh, maybe uh, other types of pressures, whether it's diapreppies or some some insect pressure or maybe 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 five top throws an issue, some other some other uh, compounding pathogen that's causing these these problems. But there are a lot of unanswered questions. And over these two years, it's almost as if my my questions have exceeded my answers by thousands of times. And, and I'm trying to develop collaborative groups to, to try to answer these questions. Cause a lot of these professors who have been working on this problem for over 15 years have gone down some of these same avenues that I'm considering and collaborating with them to know what they've done in the past so that I can um, not duplicate their efforts but to hopefully um, uh, find a more synergistic pathway in taking what we've learned from the people who are pioneering this research in HLB and, and trying to get closer to an answer for the growers. 
I can tell that you're passionate about it. I can hear it in your voice that you're 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 chasing those questions and looking for answers. So that's that's good to know. We got people like you uh, out there looking looking for the answers and working with growers to do it. Uh, you mentioned scheduling the uh, a visit. How, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you if they would like to do that? Well, um, you can always send me an email. I'm, I check my email probably uh, 50 times a day. Um, it's uh, J is in John and then Chater. So J-C-H-A-T-E-R at U-F-L dot E-D-U. Um, you, can you can contact me that way. If you want to leave a, a, a message on my phone or try to catch me while I'm in my office, my phone number is 863-956-8662. So you can also call me if I'm in my office. I pick up my phone if I'm not in the middle of a meeting. And I'm happy to schedule it that way. If I get a lot of um, uh, inquiries about this or, or a lot of interest, I'll be happy to, to set up some sort of field day where we can visit some of these locations. Great. Well, we appreciate your work and appreciate you joining us for the podcast today. And with that, we'll wrap it up. And thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. Now we're joined by Sandra Guzman. She is a researcher at the Indian River Research and Education Center in Fort Pierce. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you, Frank. Great. It's great to have you. And we're going to talk a little bit about a new software program that you've developed. But before we do that, I just wanted to take a moment to let you tell the audience a little bit about what you do over there at the Indian River Center and, and just get to know you a little bit that way first. Alrighty. Uh, yeah, so I am an assistant professor of smart irrigation and hydrology at the Agricultural and Biological Engineering Department. Uh, here in Fort Pierce, uh, uh, my research and extension appointment mostly focus on implementing sustainable solutions for agricultural water management. So what we do is utilize sensor networks, data analytics uh, to optimize um, water use efficiency, but more than anything else, crop production. Um, my research program kind of combines the socioeconomical and technical aspects of uh, managing water in uh, specialty crops. And my extension program mostly focus on improving the grower's capacity to make informed water management decisions on, at their own farms. Um, you may have heard this from me before, but our motto uh, in terms of technology implementation is if it's not easy, it's not useful. Uh, so that is uh, the idea and the vision of our lab. Great, and that's a great motto. And it's a perfect segue to talk a little bit about a new um, application that you've developed called IRIG Monitor. And let's just talk a little bit about what that is and how it can be used by citrus growers and even other growers, I assume. Yeah, uh, I'm very happy to introduce Eric Monitor uh, for uh, free use. Eric Monitor is a centralized system uh, that combines uh, data from multiple data sources and manufacturing uh, companies or data providers in one display. Uh, so the users can see the data in a more practical way, in an easier well, uh, way. Uh, having all of this information in one display is extremely important because it simplifies irrigation management decisions and also avoids the complexities of dealing with multiple sources of data. 
So imagine having 10 different logins or 10 different apps uh, where you have like to open all of them uh, to check how is the water status, if it's going to rain, if how is the weather, all of that. And then you have less than 30 seconds uh, to make a decision in the farm, in the field. Uh, so this kind of, um, this kind of uh, issues shouldn't be happening at the field level. ERIC monitor is made for that. So you can open only one uh, service and have all the data you need for irrigation management. Um, ERIC monitor give us uh, real-time information uh, of uh, the water needs of the orchid. Uh, as you mentioned, Frank, uh, this can be used for citrus, but also for vegetables, for any crop. Uh, we are working with micro-sprinkler irrigation. We are working with seepage irrigation too. Uh, the seepage irrigation component is, um, is um, we are testing it. Uh, is not there yet, but we are um, going to incorporate it pretty soon. So yeah, uh, that is pretty much in a nutshell what ERIC Monitor does. Right, kind of a one-stop shop, like you said. How long have you and your lab been working on it? Well, we started ERIC Monitor around uh, at the end of 2021. So we have been working with this tool and this software for a little bit more than two years. Um, Eric Monitor actually started because a couple of growers from here, from the Indian River region, uh, came to my office one day and two separate growers uh, came to my office uh, one day and uh, asked me to connect their sensors to anything. They wanted to see the data from their cell phone. They were asking me, okay, I have a store and I want to manage my irrigation using my cell phone. Uh, then when we were evaluating this, their sensors, uh, we saw that unfortunately those uh, the sensor technology was already outdated for the technology that is available right now. But the grower did not the growers the two growers did not want it to change from the old sensor to the new sensors. So we started connecting systems and help them. And uh, after that, after uh, a good uh, set of trial and error with those two growers, uh, we started uh, the development of ERIC Monitor. We found that uh, all of these data uh, analysis and making decisions rapidly was uh, in reality a need uh, for growers in the region. So that, that was why um, we started it. Uh, we started two years ago and we are still incorporating features. Right. And one thing you I think you you want to make it clear, too, is, is this this technology works with existing uh, programs or tools like weather stations and soil moisture probes. So you don't have to go out and buy a whole bunch of new stuff to make this work. Uh, a lot of the existing technology, this this plays along with that. Correct. Yes, yes. So uh, we work at, uh, let, let's say, three types of scenarios or three types of situations where you have uh, a sensor, but maybe do not have a way to com uh, to transfer the data to your computer or to the cloud, for example. Uh, we have another scenario where you have all the data, but you don't know how to analyze it. And then we have DSU where uh, the grower is already working with data providers, with companies, and they are already getting the automation. But um, 
but in terms of uh, the data uh, of the decision maker making process, they may not have all the tools. So we have those uh, three scenarios. We work with the grower and we work with the company they are working with um, in order to make the, the, um, the transfer of data and the decisions uh, in an easier way. So yes, we are not, uh, we are not um, um, requiring uh, any new purchase of sensors. We work with the current sensors and the current systems that uh, each one of the farmers have. Do you have any observations or data on the amount of water you know a grower could save by having this information at their hands uh, or even in, in the nutrition area as well? Um, yeah, so studies have shown that by using soil moisture sensors or any database technology for irrigation scheduling, that water savings could go up to 40 or 50%. So imagine for every gallon of water that you are applying, all like you will have more than 50 per, more than 50 percent of savings so double uh the amount of uh use for that water so uh, with irrig monitor what we are focusing is on making easier the use of these technologies uh, so the grower can take advantage of all the potential that these technologies have in reducing cost of management and in reducing um in reducing um losses this, for example, from uh, nutrient uh, application. So systems that are like IRIG Monitor actually allow the implementation of automation systems. Uh, it allowed uh, uh, to incorporate this, uh, this concept of uh, We have heard that, for example, for HLB trees, uh, it's always better to spoon feed, so give uh, the right amount of nutrients, the right amount of water, very freaky. That is very difficult if we don't have any technology in the field. That is very difficult if we are asking the uh, the irrigation manager or the of the grower to go every two hours or every single day, day and night to irrigate. With these kind of systems like irrig monitor and automation, we we can actually turn on and turn off the irrigation. So we can spoot feed, uh, spoot feed uh, the tree. And then, of course, uh, we are going to see a little bit better management, especially for uh, citrus greening uh, trees. This is not only for citrus again, but uh, at least for citrus, this is a, this is an, a really good opportunity. That's great. Like you said, a one-stop shop customized to how they want to receive the information. So it sounds like a very interesting tool. Sandra, we appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much and uh, look forward to hear from you. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. 